Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 1. I thought we would get out of the first seven verses this week, but we won't. But one of the, the uh, section of Psalms that, was, uh, that, we, that we read was so providential, especially that first word, uh, forever, O Lord, that word is fixed in the heavens, right? And this could actually be the theme of, of Romans, because that is what Paul is concerned about. He's concerned about how God has been faithful to do what he said he would do, uh, his promises, uh, in those promises endure forever. And uh, we're going to look at um, we're going to look at that. It's one thing to simply say, "Yeah, the Word of God stands forever." What does that mean, though? What are we What are we saying when that when we talk about the permanence, the endurance of God's Word? And we're going to see uh, we're going to see several things. First of all, I want to uh, something that I failed to mention last week um, about kind of the the whole background of this word gospel. What in the world does gospel mean, and where did it come from? Did Paul just invent this out of out of thin air, uh, or is it does it have its roots in the scriptures? And we'll see, obviously, that it does has its roots in the scriptures, and and uh, we'll see what all that means. Hopefully, so let's uh, let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word, how it uh, quickens us, how it makes us alive, and how you have raised us from the dead through your word. Thankful, Father, that the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in us, and it will give life to our mortal bodies. We're so grateful for that, and, and uh, we look forward. Uh, we participate in it now, but we look forward to that day when you raise us all. Father, we just thank you for, for um, how you've loved us and how, how, you, uh, how you have done all of these things so that you might save a people, that we might declare your works among the children of men. We just thank you, Father, and we just pray you be with us now uh, as we open your word. In Jesus' name. Paul, a servant of King Jesus, a called apostle, set apart unto the good news about what God has done, which was promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, the one who is out of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be the Son of God powerfully, according to the spirit of holiness out of the resurrection of the dead, Jesus, the King, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship unto the obedience of the faith among all the nations for the sake of his name, in whom you also are called ones of Jesus, the King, the Messianic King. To all who are in Rome, beloved by God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and our Lord Jesus, the Messianic King. He repeats that over and over again. He, he calls it Christos, Christos. Christos is the anointed one. He's the Messianic King, and that's what it means. We often think of, of Christos as Christ as being the last name of Jesus, but it is not his surname. This is a title, a Messianic title, and we're going to see that that uh, also could be said it could be matched up with the term Son of God, as we're going to see. Now, last week, uh, we touched briefly on what the gospel is, the good news, uh, and spoke of how Paul set out to present this very gospel here in the book of Romans. And while there's often a desire to boil the gospel down to a brief statement, 
it's easy to miss some very important truths unless we come at it from a variety of angles. And we might expect the most important set of events in all of history to be a bit too complex to be condensed neatly into one little brief statement. But we do it. But here we have the opportunity to explore what Paul means by the gospel in some detail. There's one thing, and I would be negligent not to mention it here. I will take this in a slightly different direction toward the end of the sermon. But there's one thing that I failed to mention last week. Where the New Testament word gospel actually comes from, and not simply the terminology. It's not, a, it's not a matter of Paul plucking out this terminology from somewhere and then using it for some other purpose, but also the first and original presentation of what the good news is. I'm speaking of Isaiah chapter 40 through 66, the, present, the presentation of the good news in this section. You will note that the book of Isaiah has 66 chapters. It's quite a massive book. 1 through 39, if you just have, just take a brief scan of, of the first 39 chapters. You don't have to read them, but look at the way they're laid out. 1 through 39 is basically, um, we're going to see, it, it basically says, look, this is where Israel is. This is what's going to happen to Israel. And then 40 through 66 is then going to say, Okay, this has happened to Israel. What does the future look like? Many discussions of the gospel betray no knowledge whatsoever of the background of the term gospels used within the scriptures. The way that Isaiah is using it to, to describe what he sees for the future. What I, Isaiah sees for the future, he terms good news, euangelion, the gospel. That's what he's preaching. But a knowledge of such, a knowledge of the way that, that Isaiah is using this term will be greatly edifying and add depth to our understanding of what God has done, as we said last week, what God has done, and how he's been faithful to the covenant promises. Turn for just a moment to Isaiah chapter 40. And let's have a brief look at this section. And... Uh, what we're going to see is that the terminology that we hear so often about good news sounds very much like what we hear in the New Testament. It puts forth the grand theme of Israel's return from exile and Yahweh's return to Zion as king and his sovereign ruler, as sovereign ruler over the nations. What Isaiah is doing as a book, Isaiah as a book, in its essence, is interpreting scripture, which for him is in, at the very least the book of Deuteronomy, probably something like the, the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And the Pentateuch, more specifically, Deuteronomy 27 through 32, lays out in great detail what the last days will look like. It's thematic. What will the last days look like? Moses has gathered Israel on the other side of the Jordan. They're not, they haven't yet gone into the land, and he gathers them together and says, this is what's going to happen in the last days. It goes something like this. Israel, as God's servant to the nations, has been given the law as their covenant charter, and they are to be a holy nation of priests to the nations. A priest is a priest to someone, and Israel was to be a priest 
to the nations. If they keep the law, they will inherit blessings and will remain in the land. If they disobey, they will undergo death, the death of exile, and they will experience the curses that are laid out in Deuteronomy 27 through uh, 27 and 20, through 29. Moses knows, Moses knows that they will not obey the law. They will not obey God's commandments. And he declares that they will surely turn away from the Lord and they will undergo the death of exile and be driven among the nations. But that is not the end of the story. For Moses, he sees a time when Israel will be in exile and they will return to the Lord and they will be forgiven of their sins. This he terms the new covenant, the circumcision of the heart which is laid out in Deuteronomy chapter 30. We're going to return to Deuteronomy chapter 30 as a central part of Romans chapter 10, but this is the, this is the new covenant that is going to take place uh, when Israel returns to her God in the midst of her exile. This will be a time of great covenant renewal, and it will in some way incorporate the Gentiles, because it is also, and this is very important, it is also a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. What does the Abrahamic covenant say? In you all and your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So in some way, this return from exile, this mysterious return from exile that Israel is going to undergo is also going to lead to blessings for the nations. And based on his reading of Deuteronomy, uh, Isaiah, and likely the rest of the Pentateuch, Isaiah 1 through 39 sets out in some detail what is in store for Israel as a result of her disobedience and the subsequent restoration. But most of the restoration actually takes place in 40 through 66, as we'll see. In chapter 6, it begins with a vision of Isaiah in the temple, likely not the temple in Jerusalem, but the temple in heaven, the one that God inhabits. There, Isaiah receives his commissioning. He's to go, and he receives the, the surprising message. He's to go and harden the hearts of his people, preparing them for judgment. What a surprising thing. But it's not a surprise to him, because he knows the scripture. He knows the word of God, which he's going to talk about in chapter 40. He knows the word of God, that the word of God is sure, it's steadfast, and what God has said he's going to do with Israel, he's going to do. He's going to send Israel into exile. And to shorten the story, this judgment will come to its final climax in the destruction of the, temp the temple, ominously foreshadowed at the end of chapter 39 in the prophecy of Isaiah to Hezekiah. The imminent destruction of the temple then hangs in the air for another hundred years or so, with Hezekiah living around 700 BC and the temple being destroyed 120-something years later, 587 B.C., 113 years later. The second half of Isaiah 4 66 assumes what was prophesied in the first part of the book has now occurred. This is very important. Split the book of Isaiah into two parts. One is, this is going to befall you, Israel. The second is, this is what it's going to look like when you return from exile. And it's here that we find the gospel, the good news. This is the backdrop to all that we are going to look at in the book of Romans. It looks forward to Israel's return from exile in the inauguration of the new covenant. 
Though time prohibits a full study of it, I'd like to look, I'd like to look at Isaiah 40, uh, especially Isaiah 40, as kind of the introduction to how this is going to work. Israel, represented by the city of Jerusalem, has just been told that exile is coming to an end and her iniquities have been forgiven. Now, notice something that's happening here. Notice the way that the return from exile, so when Israel returns from exile, her iniquities will be forgiven. There's this association with forgiveness of sins and Israel's return from exile. And then we read Isaiah 40, verse 8, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now this takes on new resonances as what he's saying is that the return from exile is about to happen. And in this way, the word of God stands forever. God has promised that there will be a renewal. There will be a return from exile. Sins will be forgiven. Israel will be restored and the nations will come in. And this is what we'll see throughout the rest of, of Isaiah 40 through 66. Now listen to the language here. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Verse 9. Get yourself up on a high mountain, O Zion, bearer of gospel, of good news. Lift up your voice mightily, O Jerusalem, bearer of good news. Lift it up, do not fear. Now, what's the message? What's the gospel? What's the good news here? Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord, the Lord God will come with might, with his arm ruling for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. What's the message? The Lord God is returning. As he left, giving way to the exile, so he will now return to his temple. But not only is he returning, his return seems to have implications for the nations and their idolatry. Verse 15, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. This is no coincidence that he, in the context of Israel's return from exile, he then, he then turns to the nations and their idolatry. Because something is going to give way with the nations too as they... Um, as they look upon, as they look upon the glory of the Lord. Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beast enough for a burnt offering. Now, he's not saying the nations are unimportant, not at all. He's saying, look, this is the goal. And by this return from exile, it's going to be a new exodus, and God is going to exert himself as king over all the nations. All of the nations are as nothing before him. They're regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. Do you not know, verse 21, have you not heard? Has it not been declared to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He it is who reduces rulers to nothing, who makes the judges of the earth meaningless. Now, what kind of language is this? Think of Psalm 2. Think of the Exodus from Egypt. What, happen <clears throat> what happens when God redeems his people? 
he exercises authority over all the nations and all of the nation's rulers bow down to him, right? This is what the good news is. And this is a very important thing. And this is what Paul envisions as he, as he turns and says, I'm proclaiming to you the, the good news, the gospel. Fast forward to Isaiah 52, right ahead of the final servant song of Isaiah 53, which we're all familiar with. Here he joins two important themes together. The redemption of Zion, which we've been looking at, the return from exile, and the salvation of the Gentiles, 52.7. Like season upon the mountains, like the feet of one bringing good news of a record of peace, like one bringing good news of good things. So we hear this term. This terminology is scattered throughout Isaiah 40 through 66. Because I will make your salvation heard, saying to Zion, your God shall become king. Your God shall reign. God will become king. Where have we heard this before? We've heard this in Exodus 15. In our, and we're going to hear it again when we observe the Lord's Supper. In our final Passover observance, and, and we will hear it again in Romans, because that is one way of summing up the good news. God is king, and his son has been exalted to the right hand of God. The kingdom of God has come. 52.8, because the voice of those who watch over you was lifted up, and with their voice they shall rejoice together, because eyes shall look, eyes shall look at eyes when the Lord will have mercy on Zion. So there's one thing. The, the Lord will have mercy on Zion. Let the desolate places of Jerusalem break forth together in joy, because the Lord has, has had mercy on her and has delivered Jerusalem. Now listen to this. Coupled together with the Lord having mercy on Zion, verse 10, 52, 10. And the Lord shall reveal his holy arm before all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation from God. Who is the arm of the Lord? Well, 53, 1, we find out. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? We know the answer. He's the servant. He's the one who's going to be lifted up. He's the one we call Jesus, salvation. He will be enthroned through his suffering. And this is where the book of Isaiah 40 through 66 is headed. The, rest, the restoration of Israel, the return from exile, will be accompanied by the salvation going out to all the nations. This is the report. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, to summarize, Isaiah sees in the scriptures the promises of God for Israel's restoration, the return from exile, and along with that, the salvation of the nations. And these two things fit together like a glove. And all of this is the backdrop which we are to hear against Paul's message of the Son of God and his summons to obedience of all the nations. We can see in chapter 1, we'll see you next week, he is summoning all of them to obedience to the Messiah. Through whom, so verse 5, chapter 1, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship unto the obedience of faith among all the nations for the sake of his name. He's calling the nations to obedience in light of this calling that he, has, that he is seeing outworking in the book of Isaiah. 
Now, all of this is the backdrop, and the very language of good news finds its origins here, as does also the content. Some have talked about, some have described Isaiah 40 through 66 as essentially the first gospel, and it is. Now, this requires some, it requires some, some reading, but it is, it is very much laying out the way that God is going to become king when Israel returns from exile. Now, uh, last week I mentioned that the openings of Paul's letters often offer us a condensed, distilled version of what will develop throughout the rest of the letter. And if this is true in any sense at all, we should expect that the following elements from the opening should be present within the letter. As an overarching theme, how was what, promised, what was promised through his prophets fulfilled in particular ways? In other words, we should expect an exposition of the scriptures. When he talks about uh, through the prophets, he's not simply saying, well, it's only the prophetic books like Isaiah that's, that's preaching this. It is a way of referring to the scriptures. Uh, in, in Ezra chapter 9, paraphrasing Deuteronomy, Ezra speaks of, of the word that is commanded by your, servant, the, your servants, the prophets. He's referring then to the whole, the whole of scripture. This is what is preserved uh, by the prophets. Thus, we should expect an exposition of the scriptures as Paul sets forth the good news that there is a new king, a new Lord, and in his words, a new son of God. The next, the next section lays out in a very condensed form what was promised. It is about his son of the seed of David according to the flesh, declared to be son of God by the resurrection from the dead. These four things. Now, all of these may seem to be somewhat unrelated, but if we think about the story of Israel for a bit, and even Isaiah, the story of, of Isaiah's vision of Israel's future, we will begin to see how sonship, David, son of God, and resurrection go together. What I, one thing that I'd like to focus on today is this notion of sonship. He says first about his son. This is the good news about his son. And then he says, declared to be son of God, powerfully, by the Spirit, from the uh, through the resurrection from the dead. Sonship in particular is going to be prominent within the book of Romans. It is not some detached Christian doctrine about the second person of the Trinity to be explained by forced analogies of essence and substance in philosophical terms. Now, it doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that we can't do that. We can do that, and it has been done. But if we focus only on the philosophical framework or the explana philosophical explanation for the Trinity, we will miss a lot that the scriptures have to offer. Now, let's look at them. What can we say about these things? What has sonship to do with David, with son of God, with resurrection? First, we should note that for Jesus to be God's son is to speak of him as a second Adam, as the new humanity summed up in Jesus. We're going to see in chapter 5, he's going to come back to this theme. Chapters 5, chapter 6, and then especially chapter 8 is going to be all about sonship. In other words, in Jesus as God's son, we find the freshly created new humanity 
in all its glory and ruling power, forgiven of its sins and ruling in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. If it sounds like Romans 5, it is. Romans 5, 17, for if by the transgression of one, death reigned through the one, much more those who receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Jesus as the new Adam and the summing up of the new humanity far surpasses the first Adam in his accomplishment of bringing resurrection, even though the sin of the one resulted in death. Jesus has completely reversed that which was done in Adam through obedience unto death and his powerful resurrection. The people of God who believe in him then share. They share that death and resurrection so as to rule as he does ahead of time. This is precisely what Paul is on and on about in chapter 5, verses 12 and following. Sin reigning through death by Adam and grace reigning in life through the Messiah. And to show you that we're not simply inventing this, this meaning of the term Son of God, the Son of God as the new Adam, Luke seems to be doing the same thing, something very similar in his gospel. By defining Son of God, Jesus' sonship, in relation to Adam, he puts forth Jesus as Son of the Most High, who will inherit the, the throne of his father David which is then juxtaposed with Adam as son of God, working it. We don't even think about Luke's language here, but Luke calls Adam son of God. You think, well, there's only one son of God. Well, not so fast. What he wants us to do is hear resonances of this language, son of God, as it's applied to Adam, and then see the way in which he is, Jesus is the embodiment of the new Adam, the new, the new son of God. Working backwards from Jesus' baptism, what we might call his anointing as king, through his genealogy, all the way to, the, to Adam as son of God, this is the sequence that Luke is, that Luke is telling. I'm, I'm going to read just a bit from it. He is telling us what the very title son of God means. The messianic king ruling on the throne of David as David's son and Lord, as the one who will... Do what Adam failed to do, essentially. Luke 1.32, he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. See there, sonship is related to his rule on the throne of David, his messianic rule. The angel answered and said to her, verse 35, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy child shall be called the Son of God. What does that mean? What does it mean? We're going to see. We're going to see that this, the pouring out of the Spirit upon Jesus is his anointing, just like the, the Messianic kings of Israel. Now, when all the people were baptized, this is chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 21. So skipping ahead just a little bit. In Luke, uh, now when all the people were baptized, Jesus was also baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was open. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came out of heaven, you're my beloved son, in you I'm well pleased. When he began his ministry, Jesus himself was about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, the son of, of Eli. Then the end of the genealogy. Chapter 3, verse 38, 
He's the son of Enosh. I'm not going to read the whole genealogy, but it's important where it begins and where it ends. The son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, son of God. Adam is called the son of God. Verse Chapter 4, verse 1. But Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness. Now, we must be careful not to decontextualize what is happening here, and especially in our discussions of these terms like Son of God. And we must listen, I would I argue that we must listen for this backstory within Paul's telling of the story, albeit in a different type of genre. To receive the Spirit and for Jesus to be raised from the dead by the Spirit is to speak of the, the Spirit coming upon Jesus. Uh, that is to say, in no uncertain terms, that Jesus is the Messianic King of Israel who has been empowered to exercise his rule by the Spirit, which anointed him at his, at his baptism and raised him from the dead. Luke intends us to hear the following echo in the background of his text, for Samuel 16, 13. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him, this is David, in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And this is precisely the context of Paul's usage of Son of God and of Luke's. Likely it means even more, but it certainly means, nothing, it means no less. That Jesus, the Son of God, is the Messianic King who rules in the power of the Spirit. Our text says, Declare to be the Son of God powerfully, according to the spirit of holiness out of the resurrection from the dead, Jesus, our Lord, Messianic King. The Son of God is the anointed King of Israel who has been empowered to rule Israel, and then through his crucifixion and resurrection has been installed as not only the Messianic King of Israel, but the Lord of the world. And Paul is summoning the whole world to faithful allegiance to this King through the announcement of the good news. Exactly what we see in Isaiah as well. Behold, the Lord is com coming, and his arm is ruling for him. He's coming as king. He's coming to rule the world. Romans 8, 8, 18. We are going to share also in the glory as, what are we called? Sons of God. Those who respond in faithful obedience, and this is, this is a large part of the message of, of Paul, those who respond in faithful obedience, they too are sons of God. Ruling ahead of time by virtue of his rule, his glory, in anticipation of the resurrection, where those who are the Messiah's people will share with him the rule, the glory associated with his rule. And this is what he means in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. What is this glory? Are we just going to shine like electric light bulbs? No, we're going to rule with the Messiah. That's what it means. Heirs with Christ, co-heirs together with him. Right? Heirs of God, co-heirs together with Christ. Right? That's how we, that is our future. Not sitting around on clouds, strumming harps and glowing. It is ruling. It is glory that we've been destined to, not because of what we do, but because we are in the Messiah, and that's what he's doing, he's ruling. How will they do this? How will they rule? Well, he has an answer for us. 
through their faithful sharing in the sufferings of their Lord. That's how we rule. That's the answer. So this sounds all glorious, and it is glorious, but it's glorious in a way that is hidden to this world. How do we share the glory? Through faithful sharing of the sufferings of our Lord. Hear the word that says, in all these things, what things? Death, life, hardship. We overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, one more thing that must be said about this term, son of God, is that Israel herself, as the redeemed from Egypt bondage, uh, the Egyptian bondage people, was given the title of son and was to be, though she would later fail in her mission, something that, that Paul will bring up in Romans. She was to be God's royal son, reigning in the midst of the world reigning in the midst of the land over all the nations through the power of God in an exodus-shaped deliverance. This is the whole point of the story. God didn't just bring Israel out of Egypt for nothing. He brought Israel out of Egypt to rule the world. Now, they failed in this. God's people was born as God's son through her salvation from the idolatrous nation Egypt. This is Exodus 4, chapter 24, 22, 23. We want to look it up. Let my son go, God says to Pharaoh. Let my son go. Does it say, just let my people go? This is my firstborn son, Israel is. And she is to go. She is to be enthroned in the midst of the nations, and she is to rule over all the nations. She would go on to recapitulate the sin of Adam and would be found to be uh, as... Um, as evil and as, as wicked as the rest of the nations. But this was God's purpose, to bring sin to a place where God could condemn it and defeat it, to bring it first to Israel, God's son, and then to bring it to Jesus, God's son, the one sent from his side, and there to condemn it in the body of the Messiah, Romans 8, 3. What uh, what the law could not do, weak as it was because of the flesh, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for a sin offering, he condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. That's what he was doing in this great mystery. He was bringing sin to a head in Israel, then in Messiah, so as to condemn it in the body of his son. Lastly, lest we forget, the term son of God was an, uh, an international imperial statement. There's a new king on the throne. And the announcement has gone forth to every creature on earth that to him belongs the faithful obedience and service. We looked last week uh, briefly at the way that, that Caesar was portrayed as God's son. And this message, this message resonates it resonates not simply because Paul is wanting to be disobedient to the emperor. It resonates because this was the message of Isaiah. This brings us full circle to where we started in Isaiah. Paul didn't need to go study imperial Roman rhetoric and then to go craft a response to it. No, he likely heard imperial rhetoric of peace and safety under Caesar's sovereign rule quite often. And there's little doubt that the Roman Christians heard it all the time. But Paul had the message of Isaiah, where Cyrus, the ruler of the world at that time, 
is called Yahweh's servant, even though Cyrus surely didn't know Israel's God. But that didn't matter for Isaiah, and it doesn't matter for Paul. Caesar is God's servant. Everything is God's servant. That's what he says in Romans 13. For he is, your, he is God's servant. That's what he says. You can hear echoes of this in, in, uh, in Romans all throughout it. The Caesar himself is the servant of God. Right? He's been demoted. He's not son of God. He's servant of God. That did not matter. It didn't matter if, um, if Caesar didn't know him. He's still his servant. The good news is going forth. There's a new king, a faithful Israelite, in whom the covenant with Abraham finally reached its climax, and he is ruling over the world. He is the one through whom faithful obedience as son has secured the world as his inheritance on behalf of his people. And in advance of the final resurrection, he has begun to resurrect the people to share in that inheritance. Now, one last thing, and, and we'll end for today. Uh, don't check out on me yet, though. When, when Paul talks about his apostleship, we often think that maybe, maybe he's just on a power trip, that he, he needs to express his authority um, and stroke his ego in some way. So he says, look, I'm the apostle. I'm the apostle to the nation. You should listen to me. That is not at all what's going on. What, what, Paul, see, what Paul sees, as we might expect from Paul, his very identity as apostle to the nations is an integral element in the covenant promises, the outworking of the covenant promises and the extension of those promises to the Gentiles. It is not simply a power title in the first century church hierarchy. He views himself and the other apostles as sent out ones. That's what the term apostle means. Heralds of the new king, likely shaped like the servant song of Isaiah 49, which he quotes in, in 2 Corinthians to describe his apostolic ministry of reconciliation. He quotes from Isaiah 49 so as to say, we as, as those who are in, in the Messiah, who is the servant, we are also sharing in his mission as the servant to the nations. Listen to me, O islands, he says in Isaiah 49.1, and pay attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord has called me from the womb, from the body of my mother he named me. He's made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand he has concealed me, and he has also made me a select arrow. He's hidden me in his quiver. He said to me, you're my servant, Israel, in whom I will show my glory. And then verses, uh, verse 5 and 6, 49, 5, and 6. And now says the Lord, who formed me from the womb to be his servant. Number one, to bring back Jacob to him so that Israel might be gathered to him. For I'm honored in the sight of the Lord, and my God is my strength. He says, is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the, the preserved ones of Israel? I will also make you a light to the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the world, the ends of the earth. See those two things again? Those two things that we saw earlier in Isaiah 52, redemption of Israel leading to the salvation of the Gentiles. We'll see it here again. Now, this is the point. This very structure of Paul's identity is reflected in this twofold covenantal concern. The restoration of Israel, which he says this he says it belongs to him as well. What does he say throughout the throughout the uh, the book of Romans to the 
first, to the Jew first, and also to the Gentiles. This is not simply some, some statement about just his habits. This is a statement of the covenant, the way that the covenant works itself out through the world, to the Jew first and also to the Gentiles. The redemption of Israel, the redemption of the nations. And this very structure is, has become a part of Paul's identity. As he viewed himself, the other apostles and the churches to whom he wrote, as being at the heart of the very unfolding of the scriptural purposes of God, the outworking of the story that began at creation. As we'll see next week, Paul hoped that within the providence of God, he could use the church at Rome as a springboard from which to launch his ministry to Spain. Spain in those days was the ends of the earth. That's how he viewed his whole life in ministry. That would ultimately fall to others since Paul himself would die in Rome. Tradition is correct. But this very desire to press on into untouched regions was rooted in his view of his apostolic mission related to the covenant promises of God. Now, application. We too, to the extent that we are in the Messiah and identifying with him, are in the midst of the fourth of a five-act drama. We, too, must make this an integral part of who we are. To see ourselves not simply as detached individuals within, uh, within some type of American Christianity. No, we are to see ourselves as those who are in the Messiah and have purposes that relate to the the divine rule of God, the God of Israel over all the earth, that is to be our mission. And we are to begin to learn to identify ourselves more and more with this and less with this, this individualized Christianity that we find today in, uh, in our country. We are to be that, have that laser focus that Paul, is, that Paul has. Look, we have to take the good news. Now, if you are anything like I am, not very old, but I can feel it every day in my bones. We are not getting younger. And your life must count, right? My life must count. And what, what's it going to count for? What's it going to count for? Let's get, let's get the, uh, the, the mission of Paul, which is the mission, the very mission of God, into our bones, deep into our bones. And let's see it work out in the world. Will you become a herald of the king? who was so marvelous, marvelously foretold in the scriptures. First of all, are your sins forgiven? Because this is, where, this is where it begins. Are your sins forgiven that you might become part of that new humanity that is sent forth into the world to proclaim the glory of the risen Lord?